The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, the billionaires bash Bitcoin. The Oracle of Omaha himself calling Bitcoin rat poison squared. But our own Brian Kelly is coming to the cryptocurrency's defense. He will explain what Buffett is getting wrong. Plus, turns out Tesla might need more cash despite Elon Musk's recent rant implying otherwise. We'll explain why the electric car company could be raising more funds sooner than you think and what it could mean for the stock. But first, we start off with the tweet that turned the market today. The president's looming decision on the Iran deal. Let's get to Eamon Javers in D.C. for all the details. Eamon. Yeah, hi, Melissa. Officials here at the White House are remaining mum this afternoon about what the president's decision actually is. We saw that tweet this afternoon, the president putting out that he's going to make an announcement uh, here at the White House at 2 p.m. tomorrow on the fate of the Iran deal. Remember, he had set himself a May 12th deadline to make a decision whether to stay in or out. And over the past couple of weeks, we have seen a range of allied leaders coming here to the White House to lobby the president to stay in the deal. We saw Emmanuel Macron of France, uh, Angela Merkel of Germany, among others. Theresa May has been active on this front as well in England. Emmanuel Macron raising the possibility of sort of an expanded Iranian deal. Rather than scrapping the existing framework, he was suggesting adding negotiations on a range of other elements, including the Iranian ballistic missile program, its influence in the region, its actions in Syria as well. That uh, seems like it might have been appealing to some here in Washington, but the expectation uh, going into tomorrow is a pessimistic one among those people who support this Iran deal. Uh, the president has called it one of the worst deals in history. His staff, uh, by and large, are opposed to it very strenuously. It seems like we are heading for a pullout, uh, at least if all those indicators can be believed. But the official decision uh, remains behind closed doors here, and we won't know until 2 o'clock tomorrow unless it leaks out early in the day, which sometimes things can do here in Washington, Melissa. Certainly can. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers of the White yeah. House. So we saw the markets reverse on this with oil and energy stocks pairing uh, their gains. So what does this mean for the energy trade as well as the markets at large? Because this puts geopolitical concerns right back into the front burner. Yeah, I mean, we'll try to break it down in terms of market at large and energy. Tim's been on this energy trade now for a while. And listen, crude's been going higher long before the president started talking about the Iran deal and stuff. I mean, that's just the latest headline. I get it. And it has definitely brings with it concerns. But this trade has been working now for a while. I think the trade that still works, in my opinion, are refiners and the names that are levered to the price of crude oil. And I go to Anadarko Petroleum, who, in my opinion, just reported a pretty decent quarter. Stock really didn't do much with it. And if you want to go sort of, I guess, downstream, I'd stay away from the big integrated names. But Howard Burton, I think, at 15 and a half times forward earnings in this environment looks pretty interesting to me. 
Yeah, you know, we're 72% north of the June lows of last year on crude or Brent, whatever you're following. Actually, Brent's a little, uh, a little stronger. I, I don't think you're investing in the energy sector based upon an, a, a, an Iran kind of supply disruption stoppage, whatever you want to call this. There's probably 5 to $6 a barrel in oil prices right now based upon this. You're buying oil sector because you think the supply-demand balance, it, both in terms of global demand and in terms of what's happened in terms of uh, capacity that has not been invested in, whether it's CapEx, whether it's OpEx, um, and that oil companies, especially the EMP names, are running their businesses for shareholders again. So that's why you want to own. APC is a great story. By the way, Eric Dickerson's pick on the, the power launch uh, draft, by the way, Pony Express. Um, but bottom line here is I, I think you stay in the energy trade based upon that. By the way, guy brought up refiners, outperformed the S&P, and in, in fact, the energy sector by over 5% last week. I like that trade I, as well. I guess here's a question, though, because it's going to be impossible to, to sort of determine what can or, or may not happen. I mean, there's a, a myriad of, of things. It's not just do we pull out of the Iran deal, but it could be in what way do we end right. sanction relief? Do we, does it take six months to do that, et cetera? So there are various permutations. But are you in the oil trade, and do you still stay in the oil trade if oil prices go down to 60? Yeah, absolutely. I'm in the oil trade. It's, and it's I still think a sustainable trade. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with Tim. You know, I don't know if it's $5 or $3 in the price of oil on geopolitical uncertainty, but oil has been going up long before we've had this geopolitical uncertainty. I will say, I'm in oil, I'm in USO, uh, I'm in some of the integrated names, but I will say what concerns me is it's a fairly crowded trade. If you look at futures positioning, we got extreme highs on longs here. So you're not the first person discovering oil in this case. So I would just say be careful with it. Uh, you know, if you're initiating a new position today, I'd use a very tight stop. Doesn't it seem a little narrow just to kind of think about the oil trade? You're, you know, we're talking about geopolitical uncertainty all of a sudden. And, and this is a situation that has potential knock-on effects to other geopolitical situations. There's no doubt about it. You've heard it all. You know, why should North Korea, Korea believe that we will, you know, stick with a deal that we sign if we're just ripping one up after a few years with Iran? So when you think about some of the data that we've seen in Europe lately, um, that we've seen even here, some weakness, it seems that there's a little bit of trepidation among some in the sea level suite about how they're spending at a time where we're seeing input costs go higher across the board. Right? Are, are, you, are, you, are you connecting, um, not you know, pulling out of the Iran deal to uh, CEOs thinking that actually that the other stuff that this administration are not doing, they can fall I, I think there's they, no, I, mean, I think there's no doubt about it. I, I don't I mean, think this, it's even This close. is not a political statement. I, I just think it that is if a political we, statement. What, really? I, it, it's, it's a statement that you know, if you're thinking about where we know that we're going to have a mid-June sort of situation, we know that some of the tape bomb that, um, you know, like we saw today, we saw the S&P turn, what, it sold off 50 bits Look, or something like that? So It's, it's, easy, it's easy to uh, have many different sides of the debate on the Iran deal. I think you could pull out of the Iran deal lack of compliance by the Iranis. I mean, okay, that, but that's my, my bigger enough. point is not the political it's... aspects of it. It's about rising commodity costs. It's about levels of uncertainty. It's about weakening economic data. You throw that on there, it's not a good, it's not a bonus. It's not a good but those are different That's the things. Point I'm trying I, to make. I, I don't disagree with that. But but I think if if you're trying to draw the connection between we're going to pull out of any deal to suddenly this administration is going to break down things that they've uh, given to I, the corporate thank world. Thank you for trying to put words in my mouth. That's not what I'm saying. I think I've tried to explain that a couple times here, uh, Tim. Well, so I, what I'm saying is though it adds a level of uncertainty that we don't have when we have a deal in Iran, right? And it also adds a level of uncertainty of our ability to get a deal with North Korea. Okay, that's just a fact. Well, I think we've got a lot of uncertainty, so I don't disagree with you there. In fact, I think that the market's failure today at 2680, both technically, I'll leave that for Carter, but I think there's a lot of uncertainties in this market, and I don't think it has really... So my only point deal. is this adds to it. 
And I think the market's reaction I, today to the, well, to we saw that, the headline. Right? I mean, right. the markets aren't going to like any uncertainty. But I'm trying to, I'm trying I'm to extrapolate. Sure you guys connection. are sitting about we're refiners and EMPs and this and that, whatever. Even, I'm just saying that's a very I narrow I don't think swap. that's an exact how we talk. No, it's how I don't Tim think sounded. that's a great impression of me. No, I, I feel like I'm different than that. I say things that are a lot smarter than that. Before we go to Carter, real quick, I'd like to play devil's advocate. Just see the president's retort to your concerns about North Korea would be like, hey, that was a prior administration's deal. It was a lousy deal. This is my I'm deal. I'm just saying that would not, be the this response. This is not a political comment. I'm just saying you with the background. Let's, 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 let's strip away the politics. Just even more, more narrowly when it comes just to Iran. If the president decides to pull out of Iran and end sanction relief right away, we don't know how the Iranians I, will react. We don't know how the Israelis that, will react. The, the, the prime minister of Israel went on TV the other night. Just within that region, the geopolitical risk all of a sudden could potentially go higher. Forget about extrapolating to North Korea. That's not what. All right. That's not what you said. Um, that's so. exactly what I was saying. Anyway, but I do I happen to agree with everything. But then, so then you have to ask yourself: the market obviously would acknowledge this and see this. Meanwhile, I have a VIX that's below 15 for the first time in quite some time. I don't know what it all means. I mean, if if the market was as concerned as it should be, given this conversation, my sense is the VIX should have traded higher, not lower. Well, I think the one thing that I hope the one thing we can all agree on is it does add to the uncertainty. So you have to say, okay, why is the European economy weak? If I'm in the C-suite, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about emerging market foreign currencies falling off the table. What does that mean to the global economy? There are other sides, be, signs besides the geopolitical that you have to look at as a CEO and say, I wonder if I want to spend that extra dollar. Now, I'm not saying they're pulling back, but I understand the market's going to try to discount that, and that, I think, is why we saw that today. Because, in theory, if your market is thinking we're going to pull out of the Iran deal, oil probably should have gone up, not sold off. Well, and speaking of the dollar, by the way, I mean, the dollar's 5% off its lows, and I don't think that does anybody any good. And that includes the price of oil, by the way, which I think has performed very well in the face of a, of a dollar that's been rallying aggressively and I now think is overbought. Well, as oil prices continue to rise, a number of retail stocks took it on the chin today, but the chart master says that could be a buying opportunity. Carter Worth, a cornerstone macros over at the Plaza to break it all down. Hi, Carter. Hi. So, yes, obviously, earnings coming up for a lot of these retail names, which report late in the cycle. I want to zero on three big names that are at or near 52-week highs versus the sector, consumer discretion, and the market, of course, which we know is on literally up uh, one point uh, year to date. So take a look. This is the issue with consumer discretionary. The actual sector is number one on the board of the uh, 11 sectors. But that number is an illusion because if you do an equal weight, so that eliminates the, the Home Depot and the Netflix and the Amazon effect, it's one of the worst sectors year-to-date, and we know why, probably because of Amazon and so forth. But I want to look at a few names that I think are poised to do well here going forward. So Costco, no lines. Here come the lines. And what I think you have here, and you can see this, is a lot of tension. This is a well-recognized technical formation, sort of an ascending uh, triangle, if you will, or wedge. And the presumption is, at 52-week highs, you have as good a chance as any other stock to break out to a new high. We know the market is nowhere near that, and we know the sector is nowhere in that position. Consider another security, Best Buy. Put in the lines. It's the same circumstance, exactly the same, and that's what is so fascinating about certain setups. You work yourself into the apex here, and the presumption is a flat top that you break out. Uh, one more, Macy's. And they're all the same time frame, and the lines conveniently uh, fit the same story. In fact, Macy's broke out and has now fallen back into the apex of the formation. But again, I'm going to make the bet. By contradistinction, compare this. This is 
the entire consumer and discretionary sector. And if you put in the lines here, what we know is you're still a long way from being anywhere near the high. And I just don't think that's the same opportunity. Those are names that are poised to break out um, versus the sector. And this is, again, the actual sector. If I plotted the equal weight, it would be way down here. Um, I don't like this space as an overweight, but there are certain securities, these three among others, that I think are quite good. He had me at a contradistinction. Of course he did. And Come on, I, over Carter. An apex. apex. Double apex. apex. Right. Brian will bring the chair this in. Is, thank you, Brian. <laughs> thank you, Brian. Watch the distinction. What is all this nonsense? What is all Technical mumbo jumbo. Um, <laughs> if you, for consumer discretion, I understand the sector overall looks pretty bad. Does it, it look does. even worse when you just take a look at the XRT, the retail ETF? Right. So the XRT is a similar circumstance to the equal weight, because that's a, that, and that's got a lot more inputs. That's a hundred plus. Uh, names, the equal weight does look much worse because you're not having the undue influence of some of these marquee names, which are uh, taking market share and taking position from the other stocks. Well, here's a marquee name. You know, those were three retail charts. We're talking about discretionary. You can kind of argue where this stuff fits. But when you think about Walmart, it's down 20% from its all-time highs just made, you know, months ago here. And you think about some of those names that look like they're about to break out. Add up all their market caps, add up all their sales, they don't, and then tack Amazon on there. And their market, you know, like you don't even get to Walmart. So what is that telling you about retail in general? Well, retail in general is probably the most burdened. And what's so interesting with the employment where it is and with the sort of the, the disposal income finally on the rise, a little bit of inflation, you'd expect it to be better. It's all presumptively about the, the game changers, the, 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 the innovators that are destroying the former players. We're talking about retail, and we had just come off a conversation about higher oil prices and higher gas prices. So in your charting work, do you see any relationship between higher oil prices and a fall off in retail names? Sure. So remember, the, the retail names that are suffering, are it's because they have their own problem. It's idiosyncratic. There is the, the tightest correlation that uh, we've ever found, of course, is between casual dining and, and oil prices. That hasn't hit yet, because a lot of the diners have come up, whether it's cheesecake or, 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 or what have you. Um, that ultimately is where you look for signs that there's stress due to higher oil prices. And do oil prices look right now like they will go higher? I mean, my hunch is they're overdone. Uh, you know, energy, as good as it is, it's just played catch up. It's very steep. I think you trade into it, you trim or right calls. Love, I, I mean, no. I, I love Carter Worth. His work is just magnificent. Thank you for loving I, I, me. Well, I've got a question. I mean, so, so back to the S&P, though. You yeah. know, it seems to me like we ran out of gas right down, if you draw that trend line the down, trend, right where we we're supposed to. Yeah, I mean, the trend, you have, a, you have this circumstance of you're working closer and closer into a point of, of what likely is a big, big movement. Uh, my bias, again, is the downside based on the way individual security is acting. But to your point, that upper descending line, we hit it and go lower and lower. It's a sequence of lower, lower lows. Highs. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth, loved by Guy Adami, as well as millions, Men, of, millions. Yeah, not just Guy Adami. of the country. Um, you're long oil. Are you yeah. worried? Would you would would a pair trade, in your view, be short? Uh, casual dining stocks? Um, I, I don't know if that would be, I, I don't know if it would be a pair trade. I guess, I mean, I'd be long casual dining stocks as a hedge against my long oil. Oil goes down, casual dining should go up. I like the idea of writing calls against that. I think there's a show on Friday evening that you can learn a little bit more about that. But I do like the idea of being a little protective here. As much as I like oil, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a little protective. I'd like to quickly point something out in the casual, casual dining. Casual dining. You know, Shake Shack, like big run ever since I started working there. Tim said because I was only there. It doesn't really matter. But this is great run. Sorry. What did J.P. Morgan do today, Dan? They downgraded the stock, right? What did the stock do today? Went higher. In our world, that's what we call a tell.
Coming up, Apple's amazing run continues. The tech giant just inches away from a trillion-dollar market cap. We'll tell you what could get it there. Plus, Tesla CEO Elon Musk saying the electric car company does not need to raise new capital. But something happened today that says otherwise. We've got those details. And later, Tim Seymour here stepping up to the plate to pitch one biotech stock he says is heading for a breakout. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla having its best day in almost a month. The CEO Elon Musk buys up 33,000 shares and hints at potentially raising more capital. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with all the details. Hi, Phil. Uh, hi, Melissa. That capital raise hint, which was part of an uh, SEC filing by Tesla today saying, look, it always evaluates its capital needs and may at some point in the future need to raise capital in order to meet those needs. That surprised nobody. Nobody at all, because almost every analyst on Wall Street and anybody who is actively following Tesla has said for some time, it's likely they're going to need to raise capital probably this year. And here's the reason why. Look at Tesla's liquidity right now. They ended the first quarter with $2.7 billion in cash. They had a burn rate of about $785 million in the first quarter. Most believe you don't want to go below a billion dollars. So if you take that burn rate and you go out into the second or third quarter, unless you hit that delivery target for the Model 3 and you really start to ramp up deliveries in the third quarter, it's unlikely that Tesla will be able to avoid going close to that $1 billion mark. And that's why, as you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that most on Wall Street were expecting the company at some point to say this, that yes, we may need to raise capital. And that's why the shares today, uh, there was not the negative reaction that some might have expected maybe a week or two ago. I think now everybody has conditioned themselves to the fact that uh, as they expand production, they are going to need to raise capital. Melissa? And we're back uh, actually above pre-earnings levels, Phil. After that conference call, we saw that yeah. dip, but we've co completely recovered. In terms of Elon Musk's um, purchase of shares, do we have a This is right. well above and beyond what he normally purchases? Uh, I don't know how he makes his purchases. I, I'd have to go back and take mm -hmm. a look at the records. But keep in mind, I think he's got about 33 million shares, something like that, in terms of what he now holds. This is a drop in the bucket compared to, what, 33,000 shares? Very small uh, purchase relative to, uh, to how many millions of shares or 3 million shares. I'm not exactly sure what he owns, but it's a small purchase relative. All right. Phil, thanks so much. Phil LeBeau uh, joining us from you Texas bet. today. Um, so what does this capital raise mean. And, and remember back to 2016. Now you can actually see here what, what has happened with capital raises. Nothing when it comes to the stock. Mm -hmm. And even in 2016, Elon Musk had said that there would be no need to raise capital. And then they did a multi-billion dollar capital raise. In the face of that, sounds kind of familiar, doesn't well, it? Well, it's actually almost a positive, right? Because now they can continue on with their production and doing, I mean, and again, you got to look at who's in this stock. You're not going to shake out the holders. Of this. You're not going to shake out Ron Barron because they missed production by one quarter. He's in it for 10 years. That's the core holders of this. And I think you look at it again as a venture capital deal. And what I mean by that is over time, they're going to continue to have to raise money. That's what the holders understand. And that's why when you raise capital, it's a Here's good thing for this, this time. I, I think 
think this is really important. I think on the call last week, he said that they have 400 million. I mean, they have 400,000 backlog for this Model 3. That means a 400 million zero interest loan that this company has taken from people that they have to now produce these cars, right? And the burn is going hot, and they're not producing these cars. And at some point, they can have a lot of cancellations. So you add that into it. And I think that the really important thing is that, you know, the last raise was in anticipation of a Model 3 ramp. And you also saw margins that were kind of weak because they throttled down the Model uh, X and the Model S production to get this lower cost Model 3. This is what's different this time. I think there's a potential that they're cannibalizing their, their upper end cars with this one that they really need to start hitting 5,000 a week or the street's going to start to get worse. I'm not worried about the cannibalization because I think there's a ton of interest in the Model 3. I, I think the, at the core of your Tesla thesis, though, is the gross margin of the Model 3 works. And I'm not sure it works, at least, you know, and, and Elon Musk ran as far away from those questions as he could on the last call. That's the issue. If you look at the bond market, it's telling you that investors are demanding a significant more uh, to, to hold finance yeah. that risk. Um, you're down, you know, 12 points on the, the Tesla 2025 bonds, which is the, the benchmark issue. I, I think this capital raise has to be treated differently um, than the others, even though I do think it's ultimately a positive to see that the markets still want to support them. But to say that core investors could never be shaken out of this name, I think that's ludicrous. And, and I think we're at a place Just here where to be clear, a lot I didn't say they could here. never be shaken out, but you've got very right. strong Their hands. cost base you've is got, a lot more favorable. Yeah, I, I mean, losing 5% or 10% even on the stock won't Right. Be the reason. They're very right, strong. Well, of course, there's going to be reason. We had this conversation on the desk a couple weeks ago, and I, I'm going to support you. Listen, Musk owns uh, 20%. He never sells. He only adds. Okay, that's A. B, the second holder is Fidelity. Since 2010, since the IPO, they've had a static amount of shares, 16 million. They buy low and they sell high. So they have sold, but they've always been about 16 million over the last five years. That's almost 30% of the whole. I get that, but Dan, the story has changed a lot, I think. And again, I'm just going by at least it, where sentiment is different and where. It has. It has. And yet we're still holding 300. $302 a share. So the bear case is. I mean, is, a, I mean the, the bear uh, case know. is out there. 100%. You guys have made a great case for why the stock should be lower. I don't disagree, by the way, but the fact is, here we are, held 280 a couple times higher again today. What's left for the bears to sort of shoot against in the short term? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know it's held where it needed to hold, and I think there's room to the upside still. At some point, this story could absolutely blow up. I agree, but right now, as if you're bearish in the stock, you've had everything go your way, and the stock's three, still above $300. Moving on, we've got a news alert on Citigroup. Let's get to Leslie Picker in the newsroom for the details. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, the activist investor Value Act has built a large stake in Citigroup. In a statement to CNBC, a representative for Citi writes, quote, we have been having constructive conversations with Value Act and welcome them as investors. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting the size of the stake to be about $1.2 billion, amounting to about a 0.7% stake of Citigroup. Value Act, which is led by Jeff Ubbin, has been supportive of the CEO, Michael Corbett, the journal says. And based on the report, it doesn't appear that Value Act is looking to push for major changes at the bank, but simply seeking to boost the size of Citi's buyback program to about $50 billion. Now, we've reached out to Value Act for comment and have not yet heard back. But regardless, this is the latest investment in the financial sector for the firm. Value Act took a similar size stake in Morgan Stanley in 2016, and that position has done very well in the aftermath of the election and beyond. Value Act also disclosed a stake in KKR last year, Melissa. And in those um, positions, Leslie, were they effectively passive investors? Largely, yes. They didn't mm -hmm. take the 
typical avenue that we'd expect to see from an activist investor running a proxy contest or pushing for a breakup of sorts. They've largely been passive, maybe having some discussions behind the scenes with executives, but no major changes at those two firms. So we can possibly expect the same thing from Citi, but of course it's still early to tell. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker in the newsroom. Uh, Tim, you're a shareholder. Well, I think there's a lot of levers that Citibank at least either can pull or at least has exposure, whether or not levers in this environment. Credit cards were very good in the first quarter. Um, they, their global you know, their, their global business was somewhat mixed in the first quarter. Trading revenues were somewhat mixed. Um, but their core lending business, I think, is very strong. And if you want operational leverage to what still seems to be a growing economy, and I think that's what we're arguing, I like Citibank. I'll just say, you know, Value Act of Theranos and Valiant fame. I mean, you know, like if you're jumping into a stock because an activist gets in it, I just that's my only comment. Um, have at it. I, I, yeah, I I'd agree with that. But I also would say that Citi's now trading at a discount to book value. They reported book. Brian and I just talked about this on a closing bell with Kelly and Mike. And I think book value is seven one and a half dollars. Real question is why has Citi traded such a discount to book for so long? Even if you just give them a one point three, one point four multiple price to book. We're talking about a $90 stock. So I think just in terms of valuation, it makes for a pretty compelling story. Still ahead, Disney shares stuck in the mud, but will its earnings report tomorrow after the bell bring out the bulls? We've got those details. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC First and Business Worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Tim says one biotech stock that's been dead money for the past three months is about to break out, and he'll pitch you the name. Plus, call it the billionaire beatdown. Cryptocurrencies will come to bad ending. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates slamming Bitcoin today. But crypto baller BK says the billionaire boys are missing something big. And he'll break down what that is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Rat poison, baby brains, and turds. Just a few of the adjectives used by billionaires Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Charlie Munger at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting to describe Bitcoin. Now, Buffett is the Oracle of Omaha, but BK is the crypto baller from the Upper East Side. He's over at the Plasma, where he's going to rebuff Buffett. Okay, so BK, we are going to play a soundbite of what was said and then get your response. Here's what Buffett said about the speculative nature of Bitcoin. When you buy non-productive assets, uh, all you're counting on is whether the next person is going to pay you more because they're even more excited about another next person coming along. But the asset itself is creating nothing. BK, your response? Well, my response is this. Here's the bullet point. Buffett said the same thing about commodities. And it's just a, a, a difference in investment styles. Buffett doesn't think that commodities have any value either. But when you're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and I want to be clear, my investments are on cryptocurrencies in general, not just Bitcoin. But they are the fuel for the blockchain. And combining a token or a cryptocurrency with a blockchain is a powerful, powerful economic model that we haven't seen before. And I don't think Mr. Buffett is seeing it either. Also on Squawk Box this morning, Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chairman Charlie Munger said this about the cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is worthless artificial gold, which if it succeeded would facilitate a lot of illicit activity. Now that is not something I think the world needs. Thoughts, BK? Well, here are my thoughts. First of all, this is your classic castigation before investigation. I Ooh. fell into that Ooh. hole in 2012 before I did a deep dive in it. But let's look at what's happened here. Let's look at our thing. Okay, Bitcoin is a ledger. Gold is just a rock. 
That's not the diss on gold, but gold doesn't do anything. What Bitcoin does, it's a big electronic ledger that we can all see. And it has the potential to disrupt a 600-year-old process dating back to the Medici's when they first came up with double-entry accounting. Essentially, what we're doing is we're taking out of that double-entry accounting, putting it on the blockchain, putting it on the Internet, and making it software. And that's all these things are. They're software with a token attached, and it's a disruptive technology. That's why I want to be invested in it, and that's why I think... Uh, Charlie needs to do a little more investigation. How about this notion that it's a fuel for illicit activity? I mean, it is true that now criminals have switched primarily to cryptocurrencies when dealing with buying arms, buying hitmen, etc. Yeah, that's, that's been the argument for a while, but the $100 bill is actually used for more uh, illicit activities, which I believe Wells Fargo deals in. And I think they got a pretty big stake in Wells Fargo. All right, lastly, Bill Gates also chimed in during the same interview. Here's what he said. There's some really good technology in terms of sharing databases and verifying transactions uh, that is talked about as blockchain. That is a good thing. Bitcoin and ICOs, I agree completely. Uh, it's one of the crazier speculative things. And here is a very important question. Can you like blockchain and not like Bitcoin? I am so glad that Bill Gates play, play, uh, said this because it does come to the heart of it. So let's look at what we're talking about here. This is a potential big test tech disruptor. And can you like blockchain? There are some applications for enterprise blockchain. I think they're going to be very useful. But just like the intranet was how companies kind of tiptoed into the internet back in the early 90s, Enterprise blockchain and private blockchains, I think, are companies' ways of tiptoeing today. And eventually, that will all be pushed to the public chain or the decentralized internet or what we're calling the DNet. And that needs to have a token. They have to be paired to have that model. That's the powerful economic model that all three of these billionaires are missing. Well, Buffett and Munger's comments had Bitcoin retreating from 10,000. A level has failed uh, repeatedly to regain. So, Beeks, when do you think Bitcoin will return to 10,000? And do you think these comments from the billionaires had anything to do with the retreat? Uh, I don't think they had anything to do with the retreat. If anything, it probably added to the, the, the Bitcoin uh, Illuminati who actually would, would, would not want Buffett and, and uh, Munger to be in this. But let's take a look about this. You know, when are we going to get back to 10,000? Predictions are very difficult about the future, but let's give it a shot here. Here we are. We've had this tremendous, tremendous rally off the lows. Remember, this was 6,000. That was Easter weekend. I got to tell you, for those of us who are in the market, that was a pretty tough weekend, but we've rallied significantly. 10,000 coming in just about right there. That's resistance. I still think we head higher. Remember, we got a couple catalysts coming up, most particularly next week here in New York, Blockchain Week in New York. We have the Consensus Investment Conference coming up. That's the biggest conference of the year. That is typically very positive for cryptocurrencies. All right, so you've all heard BK's passionate mm. defense of Bitcoin, but who is actually right here, the crypto baller or the Oracle of Omaha? Let's vote. Tim, what do you say? Well, I mean, first of all, it was BK against the world, really. So um, <laughs> good job, BK. Um, I give BK the win, two to one. Again, I think the, the almost hyperbolic claims about Bitcoin were, were easy to have a thoughtful discussion about today, and I think that's what we've done.
Dan. I'm with BK Coin over here. Nice. Um, I just want to say that, you know, I mean, listen, these guys are legendary investors. I think what's going on is very different. What's going on with BK and his pals over in Bushwick, um, you know, it's going to be something that they'll probably be writing about for 50 years, you know, or in 50 years, that sort of thing. So I don't know why you'd be a skeptic when the top four coins have a $440 billion or, you know, the total coin market cap is $440 billion. Let's be optimistic here. Gee, clean sweep. When it comes to crypto, when it comes to crypto, BK is greater. That's a greater than sign, yes, Mel. Greater yes, than I the Oracle. And look, BK's written books. BK's spent the last five years of his life dedicating every dead, moment, every moment to learning about And it's about true. This. It is absolutely true. And respectfully, I'm not certain Mr. Buffett or Mr. Munger have put in that kind of time. So I'm, I'm with the BK on this one. All right. Well, if you out there are curious to know what else Buffett had to say in this weekend's meeting or every shareholder meeting for the last 24 years, you can head over to the newly launched Warren Buffett archive. You can find meeting footage, CNBC interviews, and more being made publicly available for the first time ever. And do not miss Warren Buffett investor teacher icon. That airs tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Still ahead, Buffett may hate Bitcoin, but he loves him some Apple. And the Oracle of Omaha's comments on the company of Centshare soaring closer to that trillion-dollar milestone. Will we see it this week? The traders will weigh in. Plus, Tim is all bowled up on one stock that is down more than 15% from its recent high. Find out the name and what has him so excited when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Apple touching an all-time high today and inching even closer to its $1 trillion milestone. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange with more. Bob. Some big moves here. Apple has added about $50 billion in market cap since Tuesday's close when they reported earnings. Now, compare this. $50 billion is the entire market cap of General Motors. It's the entire market cap of Illinois Toolworks. And it's almost the entire market cap of Colgate as well as Northrop Grumman. It's an amazing number. And Apple's market cap is comfortably over $900 billion. Its nearest competitors in the race to the first ever $1 trillion market cap, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Facebook. But as you can see here, they're far away. Now, this latest spurt started with Apple's earnings release on Tuesday, and it continued in the last couple days as Warren Buffett announced he was adding to his Apple holdings. And it sounds like he... And partner Charlie Munger would like to add more. What do you think about Apple? Do you have a thought on the stock? Yes, I wish we owned more of it. Yeah, we talked about it. I wish we owned more of it. Why? I think we've been a little too restrained. $43 is not enough? No. <laughs> not enough. By the way, a big help to Apple's latest push was that $100 billion buyback announcement. Let me show you why. Since 2013, Apple's gone from 6.5 billion shares outstanding to 4.9. Look at that, straight down. That means that all other things being equal, Apple's earnings are 25% higher just because of the buybacks. Think of that. Apple's earnings actually have doubled since then, and earnings are up 50%, though. So there's a lot more than just buybacks powering Apple's growth. Still remarkable they've been able to cut the amount of shares outstanding by 25%. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thanks so much, Bob Asani. Here's another way of thinking about Apple and Buffett's purchases. This year, the company has repurchased 137 million shares. Buffett bought 75 million shares. That equates to 212 million shares, which is just about 9% of the shares outstanding. If Buffett and the company were not there, where would the stock be? 
who is left to buy the if stock where the company, it is? I, you could probably make an argument that it'd still be in the 170, you know, one high 160s, 170s or so. I mean, obviously, the great, this is great headlines for the company, but you can't deny what they've done in terms of earnings. I mean, I'm not some huge Apple believer. I'm not going to pretend to be. But in terms of the way they're moving their business to more of a, you know, generating revenue from visible uh, product lines, I think it's a pretty encouraging thing. When, when they talk about $100 billion in, in terms of their capital markets program, it, it also implies that there's a lot of flexibility behind that. And, and this is a company that generates $53 billion in free, in free cash flow a year. Um, the fact that the services business, we talk about this now all the time, it gave you a lot of reason for encouragement. I think you've got the best of both worlds. I think there's a lot of other people that would want to own the stock, and I think they do. You know, it's not, it, it is one headline away. That 31% services and then the other that includes the watch and the wearables, that was what, what, to me, was the big surprise. And then the negative sentiment about iPhones was obviously good news. This is a cyclical business, though. It's going to become increasingly more cyclical as all this stuff becomes a bit more saturated. I just want to make one point about the services. It looked like some of the, trend, uh, some of the, the payments from, app, or from Google was a huge boon to them for searches. It wasn't this low-margin Apple music that's growing really <laughs> fast. So this, is, this business is going to have peaks and troughs. And let me tell you one other thing. There was no super cycle. There is going to be no super cycle. So you better get comfortable with, I think, what's going to be more volatility around the services and other. Right. But the bet that Buffett's making is that the company's going to come in and buy back the stock. So basically what he's hoping is that somebody, the company's a little more excited about buying these stocks than him. Oh, wait a second. See, well, I, no, 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 no. I know what BK just did there. He's going back to the greater Bitcoin fools. thing. The greater yeah. fool. I know. I Very I, subtle, what? BK. What? I don't know. Subtweet. Yeah, I caught that. Yeah. Switching gears here, one hot chip stock gearing up to report earnings this week. It could be a make-or-break moment for the semiconductor space. So, Dan, what did you see today? Yeah, so let's look at the SMH real quickly. Obviously, the three top holdings, Intel, Taiwan Semi, and NVIDIA. NVIDIA reports on Thursday after the close. This is going to be a big one for the SMH here. Put volume is two times that of calls. It looks like people selling out of some short-dated um, puts here. But look at that right there. Look at that triangle here. It's sitting on kind of key support. That is the SMH right there. Um, and when you think about this, those two top holdings, Intel and Taiwan Semi, they went two very different ways after their earnings. Taiwan Semi, Apple is their biggest customer, 21%. And Taiwan Semi has not even rallied with Apple one bit. Intel is going its own way. This is why this NVIDIA report, I believe, is very important for the semis. The semis act really bad in general. 11% the SMH from its highs, only about 5.5% from its recent lows. If NVIDIA were to do the impossible and guide down, I think the semiconductor uh, sector could go a bit lower here, probably back towards the mid to low 90s. When we had, uh, oh, we're getting the wrap here, but just quickly, you had suggested Taiwan Semi be a replacement for one of the FANG names in FANG. That you, I did. Right, so what, what, what yeah. went awry? <laughs> what went awry? Well, Chad. what went awry was, yeah, it, it was the Apple part of it, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and the rest of the, the, rest of the, um, the iPhone ecosystem, that's what went awry with this. So it ends up, you know, going with the semis and into one of Dan's triangles of death. Yeah, thank you for that. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead. Disney having a blockbuster year at the box office, but the stock is down 5% this year. So why the disconnect? The traders have some clues. Plus, Tim is stepping up to the plate, getting ready to pitch one sinking stock that he says is about to make a major turnaround. The name when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's time for a fast pitch. This is a segment where one of our traders pitches a stock they think is heading higher. So Tim is over at the Plasma with his next big idea. Tim. 
Yeah, hey, Mel. So we're talking biotech, and we're talking a sector that's unperformed, and Amgen is my pick. And here's why I'm going after this name. First of all, when this finally comes up, you'll see, look, as we see, the bar in this company, even in the sector, but especially these guys, extremely low. The product erosion is very clear. Uh, New last, uh, some of the other core products were effectively 55% of the revenues are slowly, slowly grinding down. But you've got a tremendous valuation here, and you've got a dividend, which isn't enough, but this is certainly a stock like many in the sector where there's plenty of defensive characteristics, $32 billion in cash on the balance sheet, $2.6 billion in the first quarter in terms of free cash flow. There's a lot to buy here, especially at a time when I think the sector has tailwinds behind it. Finally, there's a lot of catalysts here. I actually think new products and M&A, so it's not just the whole M&A story we hear about these guys, because I think there's six or seven key therapeutic areas for Amgen that they're going to be going after. I think they will make smart M&A, but the market's waiting to see. Meanwhile, they've got a migraine product. They've got Repatha. These are two things that are actually starting to grow. So ultimately, if you want to look at this stock and you want to look at the chart, this is ultimately a place where you've seen largely dead money during this period. I actually think it's been very defensive, and if you look at the two-year trend on the stock, I actually think it's been a very nice, gentle upswing. Amgen is a company you can buy. Do not fear the flat growth in terms of existing products. Look at the new products. Tim. Hold on, hold whoa. on. I'm calling offsides or foul whoa, ball or whatever, whoa, whatever whoa. happens in baseball. You picked Amgen in the stock draft less than two weeks ago. So what's, what's the foul ball? And as you know, I like to buy other people's problems. My strategy this year is a little different, and I'm very excited to say that I'm going with a stock Jimmy just talked about. Amgen. Buy Amgen. How about that are, stock are we draft, getting, Are we getting, Dan, are we getting sloppy seconds here? Whoa! What is the deal here? I, I didn't hear the question. Repeat it again. You don't want that repeated. Should so, we allow this to happen? I yes. All right, fine. Anybody have questions for Tim? Tim, what do you think? Tim, what do you think the potential 100, 110 billion market cap here for like two big guys just to merge rather than M and A them going out using that balance sheet? Um, is that a possibility? Very interesting. Um, I, I think the bottom line is there have to be enormous synergies, and I think in the case of some of these guys, I think there could be. It really is all about the core products, and if they believe that they don't have overlapping products, I think you might see something there. Time to vote on this um, Amgen pitch, which Tim also pitched two weeks ago mm. at the stock draft. <laughs> I didn't um, pitch it. You, <laughs> I chose it. Are you Very buying? Different. Are you, I'm pitching this one. Are you buying or buy selling it. Tim's pitch on Amgen, BK? Well, uh, Tim must have used this pen to actually write things down because it's out of ink. If you could read this, I would say buy. I actually like the risk reward on this. 164, you know that's where your stop out point is. So this is uh, magic ink buy. Oh, yeah, it does say yeah, buy. It does yeah, say. It does. Uh, Mine actually says buy. Oh. I think it's a good level here. Obviously, valuation, all the other M&A stuff. I put Tim speak the truth, which means I'm a buyer. Amgen oh. didn't raise guidance for the full year. Concerns some people, but they're sandbagging. I like it on valuation. All right, so are you out there buying Tim's pitch for Amgen, even though he chose it at the stock draft two weeks ago? Yeah. Vote in our Twitter <laughs> poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll reveal the results later on in the show. Plus, Disney's Avengers stopping the box office again over the weekend, but will its movie magic give the company's earnings call earnings a boost? Much more Fast Money still ahead. Evacuate. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney's Avengers breaking a box office record over the weekend as the company gears up to report earnings tomorrow. Let's get to Julia Borson with the details. Julia. 
Well, Melissa, tomorrow afternoon, Disney's projected to report growth in its fiscal second quarter. Analysts expecting earnings per share to grow 13%, while revenue is expected to grow nearly 6%. Now, Disney's studios should be bolstered by the record-breaking success of Marvel's Black Panther, which opened midway through the quarter and has grossed nearly $1.4 billion at the box office worldwide. Now, though it won't impact the results out tomorrow, we are sure to hear from CEO Bob Iger about the success of Avengers Infinity War. After the biggest opening weekend of all time, Infinity War topped $1 billion in global ticket sales faster than any other movie in just 11 days. That's all the more impressive because it doesn't open in China until Friday. So far this year, Disney has sold 32% of all tickets in North America, and Disney is poised to continue dominating the box office with Solo, a Star Wars story, launching Memorial Day weekend. Fandango reports early ticket pre-sales for Solo are twice as strong as those for Black Panther. But analysts are likely to hone in on questions about Disney's largest division, media networks, and questions about cord cutting and advertising. We can expect some probing about how Disney's direct-to-consumer ESPN app has done in its first few weeks. And of course, Disney's pending Fox acquisition will be front and center, especially now that Comcast has bid for Sky at a higher price than what Fox has offered. We'll be listening to hear whether Iger is willing to get into a bidding war and push Fox's offer for Sky even higher. Melissa? All right, Julia. Thank you, Julia Vorson in Los Angeles. Why do we think Disney's been trading at a discount to its peers at this point? I, I think, first of all, the value of, of content seemingly has been diminished in the uh -huh. last 12 months. But I, I think people don't believe that they're necessarily going to be able to compete with a Netflix on their own DTC offering. I think that's wrong because I think if Netflix gets that multiple, Disney should at least get that multiple. And I ask that question because uh, I'm getting at can they say anything or do anything on this earnings call to allay any of those fears or address that discount. If you watch the last couple of quarters, Bob Iger, he, Bob Iger absolutely can. I mean, the, the, what I've noticed is the stock sells off after the initial report. He comes out and speaks, and then you have this ratchet to the upside. So he's a magician in terms of his ability to speak to the street, and I think you'll see that again tomorrow. Yeah, I don't think that content has really been that devalued. You look at they're in a bidding war right now for content. I think that incrementally you just have to see the media networks do a little better. You need to see progress on their DTC and their over-the-top things, and then they're going to have they're going to have this sort of content, whether they win Fox or not, that's going to make their DTC solution a winner. Yeah, I think there's two CEOs in the media space that you're not going to want to uh, bet against, Les Moonves and Bob Iger. Those two I do not want to bet against. So when sentiment in the stock drops, that's where you want to be in and you want to bet on these guys. Up next, final trades and the results from the poll on the fast pitch. Stay tuned. So there are two polls tonight, one on Tim's Amgen pitch, the other on BK versus Buffett. Guess what? Both it is lose. Tim's favorite song, Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart, because America is not buying Tim's recycled Amgen pitch. <laughs> but you know who's having the time of his oh, life? Ryan Kelly, because Twitter is siding with the crypto baller of the Upper East Side over the Oracle of Omaha. Yeah. We haven't heard this song in so uh, long. It, feel, it feels good. And I am having <laughs> never a time. had a winner and a loser. Fantastic. Time for the final loser. trade. Loser, thanks. Tim. But anyway, it was a winning trade. It <laughs> should be a winning trade. Go with Amgen. Very cheap. Speakers. You know, I threw a little shade on gold earlier in the show as just being a rock. I actually think it's a pretty important investment. And uh, GLD, I'd be a buyer of that one. Hey, so the semis guy, we got one guy going this way, the other guy going this way. We got Intel, we got Taiwan Semi, I think MVD is going down, I think oh. SMH is going down. You can get selling in different ways. We're raising the ceiling with that song. Happy belated oh, birthday, do Tim. Uh, Halliburton. <laughs>
in the energy yeah. space. Happy belated birthday. Doesn't look at Dale. Yeah, Dale sixty. I'm Melissa Lee. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at five for more fast. Bad Monday. Jim Kramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.